Welcome to the MedEvidence Podcast, hosted by Dr. Michael Corrin and Michelle McCormick. MedEvidence, where we help you navigate the real truth behind medical research with both a clinical and research perspective. In this podcast, we'll have discussions with physicians that have extensive experience in patient care and research. How do you know that something works? In medicine, we conduct clinical trials to see if things work. Now, let's get the truth behind the data. Welcome to MedEvidence, Truth Behind the Data. Today, we're talking about what to do after a heart attack or stroke. Joining us, Dr. Albert Lopez and Dr. Michael Corrin. Dr. Michael Corrin is a practicing cardiologist and CEO of Encore Research Group, which conducts clinical trials across Florida. Also, Dr. Albert Lopez joining us today practices internal medicine with Millennium Physician Group here in Jacksonville. He is also a principal investigator with Encore Research Group for many of the lipid clinical trials. Welcome, gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. you. All right. Today, we're talking about what to do after a heart attack or stroke. So we're assuming this person, this patient is already presented. Exactly. Exactly. And, And that's an important distinction. There's always the question for people who are uninitiated, who have never had a cardiovascular event, and they're worried about, is this chest pain real? Is this funny feeling I'm having in my head something to worry about? And that's a whole different element of thinking than somebody that actually has experience. Mm -hmm. So keep in mind, once you've had a heart attack and stroke, your risk for another heart attack and stroke is way higher than the general population. So today we want to focus on that particular patient population. Yeah. And and just um, also to say is that this is a great group to talk with. It's always a pleasure working with you, Michelle. Well, thank so, you. It's so, always I great mean, to be here. Yes, we always have fun. And Al and I have worked together for many, many years, many and, years. and we always have a lot of fun talking about things. And Al has a very insightful way of thinking things, and we both share this passion for looking at evidence. Yeah. So it's great to talk to people and, and give them your opinions, but it's even better if your opinion is based on evidence. Right, and and I think this is really a great conversation because you know, there are times when you have chest pain and it, it's scary, mm-hmm. especially as a, a woman over 50, is it indigestion? You're not talking is about it, yourself now, are you? No, 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 <laughs> not right now, not presenting. Um, but is no, I was it- I talking about the, the, the age thing. No, the age thing, thanks, no. <laughs> I am over 50, but uh, I don't, I mean, have never known it. Knock on wood, any heart issues that I know of. But so this is a really interesting conversation because is it indigestion? Is it lack of sleep? Did I pull a muscle? You know, um, right. all these things present pain in that heart region. And we're not talking about that today. No. <laughs> because we're going to talk about people that have had heart attacks right. and strokes. I just want to make sure that I don't have one. Okay, we'll talk later. Okay. All right. Okay. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Michelle does bring up a good point because there is a whole workup for the atypical cardiac chest pain, right? right. Non cardiac chest pain. It's better called now and you know we can that's a whole nother hour podcast yeah, yeah that's a, that's um, a, and that's that's a lot of fun to talk about because there's really great evidence-based ways to do it but this is somebody that like you said dr corin has symptoms they have recognition of what this feels like and they can discern like this is not my heartburn this feels different exactly. this almost feels like my heart attack or when i had kind of had a stent put in this is a different chest pain and they're pretty cognizant of what's going on. I agree. I agree. And the key point, though, is that if you've had a previous event, your risk for another event is much higher than the general population. So we focus in medicine on what we call secondary prevention. That's the term that uh, Dr. Lopez and I would use. And that is usually more intensive than primary prevention because of the fact that the risk is higher. 
So one of the key elements of evidence-based medicine is that you gear the intensity of therapy with the intensity of risk. Okay. So with that, I guess we can talk a little bit about, you know, we both get these phone calls. Uh, somebody calls and says that, yeah, I've been having a lot more this crazy indigestion pain when I walk. Um, and Dr. Lopez and I look at the record and say, oh, this guy had an angioplasty um, you know, three years ago, had a stent to the LAD, left anterior descending coronary artery. And geez, this is serious. Mm -hmm. And if you want to comment on how you would advise a patient just to get them to uh, respond to that without making them crazy or, or start to freak out. Right. I, I think one of the things we have to remember is you're right. You know, the risk is like one in four recurrence rates. So your mind revs up, you know, exponentially. You're thinking much more differently than someone that, that never had an event. Um, and so we start asking, I think, a lot of the questions. In women, the questions are going to be different than men. Is, does it happen with exertion? Um, if it does, then the question is, does it happen at rest as well, which, which is worse? <laughs> um, as you exercise, does your pressure bottom out, which you shouldn't do that. You should accommodate, right? You punch the gas in a car, that RPM goes up. But sure. if your RPM goes down, we've got an engine failure. Something's going on. Right. Um, so start thinking about that in that way. Are you short of breath when you exert yourself? Now that could be lung disease, especially if you smoke, or that could be, you know, a lot of other reasons. But in this context, it becomes you know a hair razor. Right. Um, and so we start thinking of things a little different. So those are the questions I'll ask at that point. And then seeing is this a stable issue? Does it go away at rest? They do better, or if it continues to have problems, that's a whole that's rubbing it up the right. next level, right? Yes. Yeah, so, and so from the most pragmatic level, Michelle. When a patient is in the category of having had a previous event and is having a symptoms, one they have to decide, do they call EMS? Mm -hmm. That was what uh, I was going to ask. When right. do you know right. so that's the you, first if you thing. call 911 or do you go yeah, see yeah, your doctor? Your basic choices here are call yeah. EMS, yeah. Right. Uh, call your primary physician, mm -hmm. call your cardiologist, or take a stiff drink of whiskey. Oh, okay. <laughs> and, and Maybe so, you do that first and then so you make all the multiple calls. choice thinking, we'll, 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 we'll cross out the last uh, mm -hmm. option. Less option unless you take it with aspirin. Right. Well, there you go. Yeah, exactly. There you that, go. Yeah. Then that's an okay, right. okay. Right. choice. Right. 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 Well, that'll, that'll be the fifth choice. <laughs> we'll, 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 add, we'll add a fifth choice. So we'll cross out the last well, one. Well, that would calm the nerves, I think. Yeah, right. It, it, it has its advantages, but obviously it's not optimal. And then the, we, we try to tell patients is that if you're having persistent symptoms of in the chest, particularly if you've had a history of it, mm -hmm. and it lasts for more than 20 minutes, you just call EMS. Um, that's the most important first phone call. Because uh, over the phone, Dr. Lopez and I can just be very limited. We give you advice, but the things that would actually intervene to make a difference have to happen in a medical mm -hmm. facility, uh, in an emergency room. Yeah. So rule of thumb, uh, if you have nitroglycerin at home and you're having a typical feeling of angina or something you're concerned about it, pop a nitro. Goes away in five minutes, then you can call your doctor. Right. You take a second nitro if it doesn't go away in five minutes. Take a third nitro if you mm -hmm. start to feel some relief, but you're still not quite there. But if you pop three nitro and you're having chest pain after 20 minutes, you That's call EMS. Yeah. So you, you, you just you, you come in, you let the medic, uh, paramedics get you to the emergency room where you, where you need help. And most patients, after they've had a heart attack or stroke in the past, have these medications on hand? Typically, yeah, typically they should. And the same as it applies for a stroke, even if you've had a heart attack or vice versa. So keep in mind that vascular disease tracks itself in the same patients typically. So let's say somebody's had a small stroke in the past and now they're having the chest discomfort. Well, they may not have nitroglycerin because they hadn't had that before, but they're at very high risk for heart attack. 
the, the flip side is also true. So, for example, if you've had a heart attack in the past and all of a sudden you can't move your right arm, or you're having speech problems, or your legs are all of a sudden feeling very, very wobbly, and that lasts for more than 20 minutes, call EMS. Again, just like with, with heart disease, time matters. Mm -hmm. So there's interventions that can be done in acute neurological settings that can make a huge difference in terms of your ultimate outcome. Yeah, so what are the risks, though, for that heart attack patient or even the stroke patient to have a reoccurring event? It's extremely high. As Dr. Lopez mentioned, it's over 25%. Yeah. yeah. It's, about, it's about one for one in five, depending on what your data you're looking at. Um, but we divide those into modifiable and non-modifiable risk factors, right? Fixed risks that we can't change and then risks that we can modify and change. Um, Mike, do you want to start from going there? Yeah, we'll, get, we'll go to that. But let, let, let's, uh, I think one of the, the first things that people get confused about is like who to call. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we mentioned that um, if, you, if you're having acute symptoms that aren't going away, call EMS. Yeah. And then let's say they go away. So then who do you call? So do you call your primary physician? Do you call your cardiologist? Do you call your priest? You know, who do you call? And so again, unless your priest is board certified in cardiology, I probably wouldn't call him. No, no you know, religion can do a lot of things, but probably not prescribe medication. <laughs> On the other hand, um, I think there's some variability in terms of whether or not you would talk to your primary physician or cardiologist. So maybe Al will, uh, you know, give us his philosophy. He, you know, he I, I, I know him already, and he's a very hands-on type person. Mm -hmm. yeah. But part of this is an assessment of your team. Yeah, and I think you're right. Who, who is your team? What's the accessibility of that team? Right. Um, there may be times where you may call your primary care office, you can't get in, then you make the next call, it's your cardiologist, or vice versa. Um, and I think you have to know who's in your team, right? So um, there are very, very aggressive primary care physicians out there that would be very adept at kind of moving the, the balance forward and not having a problem picking up the phone and calling their colleague, his cardiologist, or her cardiologist and saying, hey, you know, I've got Mrs. Jones here and I'm really concerned. But I think this is stable enough that we can work it as an outpatient and do the workup as an outpatient. On the other hand, you know, classically at 4.30 on Friday, somebody walks in and says they have chest pain, and that's a, not an uncommon scenario, and that's when you're just raising your eyebrows and going, oh my gosh, I, you know, right. this is calling you know, EMS. Right. It should have been called two hours ago, mm -hmm. or six hours ago, or three days ago. Um, but I think either way, you've just got to know who your team is and the accessibility of your team. Exactly. And, and I think that, that's the big key. That's, that's exactly the point um, yeah. that, I was, that, I, that you made beautifully, which is that you have to know what your t who your team is. Mm -hmm. yeah. So if you've had a heart attack and a stroke, you should know who your team is. You should know who your primary physician is, and you should know who your specialist is. And if you don't, then that's your first step, is to identify your team and feel good about the team. Now, if you're somebody that has never had a problem before, you don't need a cardiologist necessarily. You might have one, but you don't need one. You should have a primary physician. But if you've had a heart attack or a stroke, you should have a team, and you should be able to identify the team members, and you should know how to get in touch with them, and you should feel comfortable and confident that you can get in touch with them. And that's a great point. It's not just knowing your team. It's also calling your team when the time's right. Right. You know, because you can know whoever, but if you're not making that call and that touch to the people that have the evidence to help you through that, that crisis or that near crisis, you're not going to get help, you know, and you're not going to get better. Right. Well, and I think the patient needs to know and have that confidence that they do have these resources available to them upon their discharge after they've had this life-altering event. Exactly. So it's up to the physician and the care team to really drive that point home to their patient as well. And, and let me make mention, you know, it's not just physicians. I mean, we have teams of, both Dr. Korn and I have ARNPs we work with and PAs we work with that have worked with us long enough that think very 
much and about the, And those are nurse practitioners and yes. physician mm-hmm. assistants mm-hmm. for people not familiar with the initials. And yeah. that may be a little frightening somebody thinks like me, but they do. They, I mean, they know <laughs> the protocols, they know the data, they know the evidence. I mean, both you and I drive the people we work with very hard exactly. because this is not the kind of job where you can make a mistake. Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. So, the, the, and the point there, of course, is that the teams are not just the doctors, but there are a right. lot of other people mm-hmm. involved. But the other part of the team is your family and the people around you. So, for example, if you've had a stroke and you're prone to another one, you may not be functional and the people around you need to know how to get help. And similar for a heart attack, obviously the the person who's suffering the symptoms may not have the capabilities of executing what's necessary to get the team involved. So it's important that your family members are also familiar with the team players. And I think it's knowing the extent of where your baseline is after your first event. So there are people that have damage enough of their heart muscle that they're very short of breath just walking from the bathroom to the kitchen, but is it different? Can they make it to the kitchen now they won't be able to make it? So your family members have to be very Mm -hmm. adept at knowing what your baseline is after that first event or second event and that this is different, right? Um, Or the person has a stroke they can't articulate what they're, you know, they can't say what's going on. So we had a gentleman that came yesterday and I believe he was a college professor and he just says one, two, three, A, B, C, D. Mm-hmm. That's all he ever says. Right. And his wife is almost an empath. She can tell me what's going on, what's mm-hmm. happening. It's heartbreaking to see him, but he functions very well. Sure. But she has a great knowledge base of what his baseline is. Right. And she's very good at taking care of it. Right, him. and she would have to execute whatever was necessary to get the team involved if right. there was a change in his status. He cannot. Absolutely, so that it's a good example. So now that we know who the team is and we know basically what to do when you've already had a heart attack and stroke, we can uh, tease for the next segment and say that we're now gonna talk about what's modifiable and not modifiable. host, Michelle McCormick, and we want to thank Dr. Michael Corrin for his clinical and research perspective behind the science in this episode of MedEvidence, the truth behind the data. 